Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick second to shout out our friends at QDB.com. That's C-U-E-D-B.com. QDB is a cloud-based software that allows you to make your own customizable cue lists for spotting, composition, orchestration, mixing, and cue sheet delivery. If you'd like to try it out, use the code COMPOSERTALK for 15% off for one year. Featured as one of ASCAP's film composers to watch, our next guest is a diverse hybrid composer. He's a fellow New York University alum who won the World Soundtrack Award for Best Composition by a Young International Composer, the ASCAP Jimmy Van Heusen Film Composer Award, the Alan Menken Composer Award, and the Distinguished Elmer Bernstein Film Scoring Award as well. He has scored Blue Mouse horror film Cam and the Emmy-nominated Netflix original series Living and Documented, produced by Selena Gomez. And the composer is Gavin Brivik. What's up, Matt? It's nice to be talking with you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think you were one of the first people I ever reached out to for for this, so uh, it's cool to finally have an opportunity to uh, to have yeah, you on. Yeah, no, I'm glad we kind of waited, because I think um, I kind of knew this film actually was coming, and you had emailed me, and I just figured, you know, we should maybe just time it once this film was kind of announced, just so we'd have more to talk about. But, dude, I've I've been listening to the other episodes, and it's just so cool to see that you're podcast has been blowing up and you're getting so many incredible composers to to join you so it's i'm i'm just honored man i'm honored to be a part of this dude i'm honored to have you on as well yeah like the feeling is mutual the feeling's <laughs> mutual yeah jinx <laughs> uh you know it's funny i was talking to, to alex vangelis a little while ago and i think we both realized that like one of the last social events you went to was your uh, your album listening party. Right, dude. Right in March, Wow, right? that's funny. Actually, so that was like March 7th or 8th. It was a week before lockdown. Wow. And it was funny because uh, the feeling was in the air. So just for everybody listening, I I wrote kind of a personal album that, that's away from my film work. And I, and I honestly didn't know if I'd release it. I kind of um, wanted to just have a private listening party, so I rented out this warehouse in downtown LA, which was this kind of crazy warehouse recording studio. And I had just like 40 people, and we listened in the dark on big speakers. And it was March 8th or 9th, and it was a week right before lockdown. And and the, <laughs> the feeling of anxiety was in the air about the virus and the pandemic but it was really nice that we could all be in a tight compressed indoor space enjoying music but that's funny man that is that's the last thing we that's the last social thing i i did as well yeah it's a good way to end uh social activity it was it was fun that was a cool little space and i hope that to do something again you know i ended up writing another album in quarantine Whoa. And uh, this album actually got a record deal with this cool label called Bitbird. And they're kind of an experimental ambient dance record label in the UK. And um, we don't have like a exact release date, but maybe once that's sorted out and everybody's vaccinated, we can we can do like a kind of reunion like before pandemic listening party after pandemic listening party dude that's so i don't know how you have so much time to to do all these albums and to get all these films done and everything man the the albums are crazy so the albums are like late night passion sessions like film scoring is kind of like the my day job and i love it but when i write albums it's not i never like set out to it's usually like it starts with one track and I just wrote it away from film and I, and then, you know, I just start thinking about another one. And it's weird how it's kind of therapeutic to write music away from film in a way, 
Because, as you know, and and all the film compo- composers listening, you know, you're collaborating with such a huge team, you're getting notes, you're contributing to another person's vision, which is extremely fulfilling, but writing music for yourself is its own pleasure and its own kind of expressive art form. So I kind of think that I need to do both. I didn't, you know, this is, this is a new thing for me. So don't get me wrong. Like I haven't been writing albums. It's like this new discovery that kind of gave me a lot of fulfillment. So I, I actually really want to pursue that more, you know, kind of try to divide my time between film and solo albums. Right. Well, had you been making, um, right. I, I know you just said that you hadn't been making albums until quite recently, but <clears throat> Did you make like songs like in middle school or high school? Yeah, yeah. So like I initially start. I guess we can kind of go back to my roots mm-hmm. and work our way forward. But I, I initially started as the stereotypical guitarist wanting to make it in a rock band. And then I, you know, so I never even envisioned myself studying classical music, studying any sort of academic music, especially in middle school and high school. And, you know, initially I didn't even think I'd go to college. I wanted to do the whole, just have a band and tour after high school, which is so silly now that I think about it. But um, I actually ended up kind of getting tendonitis and carpal tunnel. So I had to give up guitar for a few years, and that's actually when I found composition. I, I, I was in school for guitar, so I did end up going to school for guitar. And then that's when I got carpal tunnel and I ended up dropping out of the guitar program and kind of feeling lost. And I ended up just enrolling in a composition class just to kind of keep my college credits to to maintain my scholarship. And then I fell in love with composition. But kind of going back to your question, I had I had written songs and then even in college, I studied just composition before film composition. So I was writing music away from film and I guess is, that is my roots, but I kind of have, I haven't returned to that for years now. Yeah. I also want to be a guitar player in a band uh, <laughs> throughout most of middle school and <laughs> high school. Yeah. What would be, what would have been the dream band to play guitar in at that time? Well, I think both you and I were, were pretty in the metal or, or are you? You're yeah. still a really good guitarist, oh, I will nice. say. I will give you that. I've seen your playing, and you've kept it up, and that's pretty cool. I have not, on the other hand. So I, I think yeah, I, I think my dream, I loved, in high school, I loved Incubus. Oh, yeah. I, and I was obsessed with Incubus's early albums, where they were kind of a jam band, where they had, they had these live concerts for hours, where they just played, you know, instrumental music. I I also was obsessed with Animal Collective. Ooh. So yeah. I loved like the mixture of Animal Collective and Incubus was this kind of hybrid of very performance-based, experimental, somewhat improv improvised music, but yeah, I think the band I was in was somewhat incubus like we did kind of jam band stuff we we all had studied a little bit of jazz Mm -hmm. so we were able to kind of make charts even in high school or like you know right after high school so we would kind of have charts where we had improvised sections or we all had a ton of guitar pedals and we just would make ambient experimental stuff (laughs) so yeah that's kind of that would have and i still think like there's still a possibility to hopefully return to live shows I still like miss performing live. I I loved doing that. Yeah, yeah. It's something that I think every composer or really just any musician should do because I feel like it is such a integral part of you know playing. Definitely. Just that that feedback that you get from seeing people react in real time to your music is huge, and I, I think it's funny because like I was talking to a composer just in the last episode about. That, that aspect of doing like spotting sessions or, or your previews where you play your music for the director and for whoever else in the post-production team and getting to see their physical reaction to the music, which can tell you so much that you, you miss out on if they hear 
you know, the bounced out quick time and then have to react over email. Right. That's interesting. That, that's kind of an interesting perspective because I, I do think there are similarities between that. And that can also be a very frightening experience, to be honest, as we all know. But yeah, especially when you bounce out quick times and they listen on their laptop speakers, you never know. It's great to have them in your studio where you can play it out of your your high-end speaker system and let them really feel like all the bass and all the, the frequencies the way you want to hear it. And that is kind of why live music is so impactful because of just how powerful it is to one see the performance and two to feel the power of the music on a really big system all right do you go to concerts a lot i did i mean yeah i def i love to i i don't think i go to like loud rock concerts as much anymore especially just trying to save my hearing unless it's a very specific band but I, I mean, I went to a lot of concerts. I, I went to a lot of kind of like, you know, L.A. Phil, New York Phil concerts. I, I saw a lot of those live score performances and I would go see jazz. I, when I lived in New York City, I went and saw a lot of jazz combo concerts or maybe smaller ensemble groups or, or even I had a few friends who would do so far shows or some ambient artists that would i think john zorn had this um experimental club in new york that i had i forget the name of it i went to a few times and you would just see very contemporary classical art music and that was pretty fun what about you you go you did you used to go to yeah i mean i feel like i in more recent years gone to see like my friends bands but Mm -hmm. um well when i was with wme uh had some connects who would just you know, text me every here and there saying, Hey, you want to go see who, who insert name band and just like go to the Hollywood bowl and be like, sure. Why not? You know, uh, right. everything else going on. So, uh, definitely discovered a lot of music in 2018 and 2019 from that. And yeah, that was kind of fun for a bit. I realized I don't love, or I don't know, actually, I, I feel like I, I really do miss concerts right now, but at some point I just got kind of burnt out too from, Feeling like yes, yeah. It's a weird thing. I mean, when I was in college, I, I'd also spent a lot of t- time working for uh, for the Ableton people, and also just helping a lot of like artists set up their Ableton like rigs in New York. Hmm. Like one that was kind of random that you might know of the band Coyote and Cambria. Oh and yeah, I of helped set up their Ableton rig for the not the most recent tour, the one before that, I think, and went over to the rehearsal space and like <laughs> made sure the click tracks were running. And it was like kind of a bummer listening to the the in-ear mixes because I felt like like there's some awesome choir stuff in there, but they sounded so good when I took the in-ears out and they were just playing that I felt like they didn't need the backing tracks or the click tracks. And I feel like, I don't know, it's kind of annoying to say that like click tracks are ruining live music, but I hope that that people can find a way to make performances more fun while also having, you know, the big sound that's needed these days to to pop through. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and then one thing is like with that, it's it's tough to kind of endure concerts sometimes, especially as an introvert, just standing for hours in these huge crowds. Sometimes the speaker systems are way too loud or really harsh in certain frequencies, and you're just you. Get, I get ear fatigue. I sometimes feel like an old man at like rock concerts, that's probably why I started gravitating towards jazz and classical concerts, mm-hmm. just because it felt, I mean, I like to sit down sometimes, or I just didn't want to be assaulted with noise. Not like not to say that there are certain bands that I love, like especially, like, you know, I had seen Incubus a bunch of times live, and, and certain bands, but it's still feels less appealing as I get a little bit older, especially now after a year of like a pandemic. I don't, I could never imagine going to a music festival or I just have no desire to really go to a super loud rock concert, but I, I would still love to see like, you know, a great orchestra play something like if there was a guest conductor or even just 
the LAFL was playing a very specific thing. It, that's kind of different, but I guess it still is a live right. concert. That's interesting too. I didn't know that you consider yourself an introverted uh, individual. <laughs> oh so, yeah, definitely. Or do you ever go to like concerts or see movies just by yourself? Yeah, not not as much. Well, actually, some some concerts. Um, I think I. Not for usually I was able to find like one friend or two to attend concerts with, but I used to see movies in New York by myself because obviously we all remember the golden era of movie pass. And when I lived in New York, I had movie pass and honestly, I wanted to see everything. And sometimes it's just hard to schedule things or sometimes I wanted to see movies when there was nobody there so I remember I used to have a class at NYU at I think it was like at 1 p.m so I I would pretty regularly see 11 a.m movies like I would go just to the earliest showing and there'd be like three people in the theater and it would be such a nice like theater AMC or one of the Regal theaters and it was just awesome being alone in a huge theater. I I saw I saw a bunch of movies, especially indies like some some like a lot of the Sundance films that would be released. I just didn't have as many friends who were as interested in those types of films, or if they were, our schedules just never aligned. So, you know, yeah, I, I love seeing movies alone. I I would say that I would say that I did that pretty often. Yeah. Yeah, I used to do the similar thing. I think, yeah, Movie Pass in New York was such a great time, especially at NYU. <laughs> but uh, there was one class I had at it like was, man. the 11 a.m. class and then like a 3 p.m., which didn't give me enough time to go back home to the Upper West Side because it would take like 30 minutes to get there, 30 minutes to get back. It seems like a waste of mm-hmm. whatever. So I just go see a movie. And then at some point, it just became like a nap time on the card of Movie Pass. Right, right. Dude, I did the... Yeah, it really was. It was such a great thing, especially when we both went to NYU. So sometimes your classes were just uh, scheduled at very odd times. And and because of the way New York is laid out and the commute, you didn't want to just ride your subway back to your apartment and then go all the way back to NYU. You you would have like three hours to spend in Manhattan because I, I lived in Brooklyn so I just didn't, you know, what do you do for three hours? Like you could go study, you could go to the library. There was a, there were things to do and they, and sometimes they had, um, I don't know, I guess you could wander around Manhattan, but yeah, I saw, I would go see movies during that time. There was always a great time to do that. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you a bit about like your NYU experience. So did you do much like film scoring or like writing to picture before that? Or did you really learn all of it while you were there? No, I I definitely did it before that. I was I was doing a lot of it before. So I initially studied at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, Kansas City, Missouri, um, and that's where I was born and raised. And they offered a film scoring class there, but it was just an intro because one of the professors, who was a concert composer named Paul Rudy, he had been offered a feature film. And he scored it, and then he offered like a workshop class that that kind of was just him talking about what his experience was like film scoring and what he was learning, and we could all kind of join in. And then he, at the time, our in-residence composer was John Corleano, who, who is the head composition professor at Juilliard, and he won the Academy Award for the Red Violin the the big upset win where he beat Thomas Newman for forget what was that movie um whatever but it, yeah he 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 scored like three films and he's a concert composer so he did some master classes and John Corleano came in and listened to all of our scores and we we were doing rescores in this class kind of the typical film scoring education thing and John Corleano kind of really gravitated towards something I did and I felt somewhat validated because he, you know, he was a Juilliard teacher, yada, yada. And so I thought maybe this is my thing because I wasn't really excelling at concert music. Like, you know, I'm not sure how many people know, but like very, that very dense academic concert music, 
um, you know, all of like, you know, Penderecki and all of those Milton Babbitt and all these serialist composers that, that was very much the school I went to was very serialist 12 tone music. And I just wasn't good at that. And there were some incredible composers there winning every contemporary composition award and they were excelling. And I just didn't, I just didn't like that music at, at the time. And I didn't really understand how to write it. So when I took this film scoring class, it just felt like a new way to write music. And then after that film scoring class, I started working with tons of students in Kansas City because there was a art institute that had a film program in Kansas City. There was a KU, which had a film program. So I started doing a lot of student films in Kansas City. And then I applied to NYU's summer workshop because I just Googled <laughs> film scoring workshops and NYU's came up. I did it and then I loved the professors and then I applied there and then so I had some experience. That being said, when I went to NYU and you start working with NYU Tisch filmmakers, it's another caliber and just another level of serious filmmakers who really want to make this a profession. Not to say that these people in Kansas City weren't, but it was just more so in New York. I felt like they, these students were really ambitious and their budgets were bigger and they were trying to get you know, people, known actors casted and, you know, and Tish offered so many grants and Spike Lee obviously was producing student films and there was just a really different energy. So it was kind of my experience before. Well, so on that, did the, excuse my ignorance for part of the the film scoring program at, at NYU, but did the program like kind of introduce you to the Tisch filmmakers or was that still like a thing where you had to go like put an effort into, you know, going to the Tisch building or just like having friends who might introduce you to their friends? Definitely the latter. Like they introduced, they had introductory. I don't want to like say that they didn't, they definitely tried. They had like these uh, meetups and some, they had like these documentary students who needed composer meetups. Like they had meetups and the, and that was great, but not like trying to just sound like negative on any of that. That's just not where I met any of my really um, lasting and connections. So the way I really started meeting the filmmakers who I still today work with and have helped me with my career one, I went to all the NYU f student film festivals. They had a lot of like internal festivals for it'd be like second year student film festival showcase. Mm -hmm. And I would just go and they wouldn't really advertise that. You kind of I just had to go to Tish, the Tisch building. And I just started doing that, like exactly what you said. I just went to the Tisch building and you would see the flyers for all their events I am sure, though, things have changed since, and there's probably a lot more opportunities to meet. But when I went there, there was there was a few meetups, and those were still great. But I so I go to the Tisch Building. I would go to go to these film festivals, and I remember one of my closest collaborators, who I still work with today all the time, whose name is Jackson Teasy. He he honestly was a freshman in the undergraduate program at the time. He was so young <laughs> and he just for like an 18, 19 year old, his film was remarkable. Like it was just stunning. And he also the biggest like advice I have for film composers who are looking to find students to collaborate with is to try to understand what your own voice is. And I know that's difficult to say, but maybe understand a direction like who are your biggest influences, like who are your biggest film composer influences and who's mute, like what kind of films do you aspire to compose for? And then try to find filmmakers who are on that similar trajectory. Mm -hmm. So Jackson had a very cinematic, but like, you know, kind of ambient style. A lot of the music he used was explosions in the sky or, you know, he had like, minimalist music or very experimental synth music and that was already what I was writing so I and I when I watched this film uh Tish allowed them to use temp music because a lot of them were not 
connected to film composer. And these films were not, these films were just being screened just for Tish. So they, you know, a lot of these films had really famous scores in them just because they allowed that. So Jackson's film had scores from like Johnny Greenwood scores to Max Richter scores to Explosions in the Sky. And, I, and it just was my exact style. And his filmmaking was remarkable. So I literally just went up to him after the festival and said, hey, dude, like, your film is incredible. And I'm a composer. I just came to NYU. And I'd love for us to connect. And he was, like, definitely, like, taken back by that. And, you know... <laughs> Um, he, he, we just, and he was like, yeah, let's connect. And we kind of chatted on Facebook for almost two years and never collaborated. It was kind of funny. We just had back and forths. We had some projects that almost happened, but he kind of just ended up maybe licensing something or whatever. And then eventually we ended up working together. But I will say that that relationship took a while and and Jackson's that's one example. Another is the, the film I worked on at NYU, my nephew Emmett. And that film ended I, I followed um all of the Tish newsletters. Like you could get the emails. And I fo- and I definitely recommend students do that. You can sign up for Tish newsletters and um you could kind of you know go follow Facebook uh groups for Tish filmmakers, which was definitely a, like a thing I always did and recommended and i would see these articles being published about kevin's film kevin is the filmmaker who made my nephew emmett and he was getting all these huge grants and spike lee was joining as a producer and i was seeing all this press about the film and so i honestly just reached out to kevin and said hey i'm a film composer i've been reading about your film and to be honest, in the beginning, I don't think he was interested. He said he was going to license a lot of like choir and gospel music. And I totally was respectful of that. And I just told him, if you need some ambient music or some transitional music, or if you need any help music editing the gospel music, I'm super open to just trying to help you in any capacity. And once the film, you know, we stayed in touch. I will say... With all these collaborations, it's kind of about finding a fine line between being annoying and following up regularly. Like you don't want to harass people, but you can't forget about them because things don't, it's it's like very rare to just email a filmmaker and then instantly be like, oh, perfect timing. I, my film is completely ready and edited and I need a composer, which I'm sure does happen. But in my experience, I kind of had to keep reminders in my phone like oh hey follow up with this filmmaker in a few weeks because they might you know finish production and you can kind of see if they need a composer or whatever but yeah Kevin and I spoke for a while and once he edited the film he said that his licensed music was just not was really actually not fitting in a lot of areas like it was working for maybe three or four sections but he really needed a composer and he didn't know any composers. And, and that's the thing is like a lot of these talented filmmakers don't know composers. I mean, look at the famous example of Ryan Coogler and Ludwig meeting at USC and Ryan not knowing any composers and he meets Ludwig and now they've scored countless huge films. I, I, I think that's kind of the key is a lot of these really talented filmmakers just don't know anybody and then you can kind of get lucky and get in early and really work together and then grow together because you're both learning how to collaborate. And then each collaboration sense, you get better. Like you you figure out each other's style. And I feel like my first collaborations with these NYU directors were kind of rough and, mm. you know, maybe took a long time and had a ton of revisions, but some of our latest projects it's like first or second pass because i've learned what their notes are i've learned the instruments that they usually ask me to remove or you know i know that's kind of a long answer for sure yeah it's just so interesting that like you know as much as we wish that the programs would do a better job sometimes about like hey like intro me to well it's like that is the job too is getting the gig and and fun it is it is that's the thing that if you don't learn it then like it's 
Or it's impossible to just like, you know, just give that really like. Of course, it's, it's impossible to give that. And they do connect you to people. Mm-hmm. The thing is, you still you, it's just hard to be connected with like your filmmaker soulmate in a way. Like, you know, it's kind of like you can get a great intro to five or six filmmakers from the program, but maybe they all want styles that you're not super strong in. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't give those a shot and still go out of your comfort zone, but there's like, for me, I just felt like maybe I wasn't the greatest composer in every style. Like I wasn't the Walmart composer who could do every... You, it's like the one-stop shop of composers. I, I do feel like I kind of have like a thing that I like to do, and I realize that it kind of narrows what jobs I can take on. But So I maybe I felt limited as a composer, and therefore I needed to seek out people who wanted what I had to offer. And maybe other composers feel really strong at like tons of styles and that maybe those composers did excel more with those meet and greets. I just felt like I needed to be really picky and really find the people that needed my style and that and and I do feel like you're completely right. This like so much of our skill set is finding the job and you can't expect to just have people introduce you to everybody in town, especially when you graduate school and you move to LA, it's like, how are you going to meet people? It's like, you know, it's like, what do you expect your teachers to just email everybody in LA and hook you up? Like it's, it's kind of a silly. For sure. Yeah. But at the same time, it's, it's useful to be in that environment for that exact thing you mentioned of growing with your directors and having that opportunity to, you know, have access to the the next generation of legendary filmmakers. Definitely. I, I, I will say there has been a lot of discussions. I've attended panels where film composers who are in the crowd kind of asking, you know, experienced professionals, should I go to school for film school for film scoring? I, I think when I was at the world soundtrack awards, there was a panel and that was the exact topic. And there was tons of young film composers from across the world attending that festival. And they were all asking like, should I go to school for this? And I think that the question is is, is like, it's not if you should go to school specifically for film scoring. It's like, should you, you should go to a school where there's a really good film program. And I do think there's kind of a, it is tough because you're almost paying for your connections in a way, or you're paying to go to the school for the opportunity to meet filmmakers. And yeah, that's its own debate. And I totally understand, like I'm in over my head with student debt. (laughs) We all have our like up, but like, was it worth it? Definitely for me, you know, I'm doing something I love and it's priceless and I guess I got to meet people that are lifelong friends like these filmmakers have are not really um work I mean call it they're not like clients they're like friends and co- like really close friends like we hang out all the time and don't even talk about film for hours and we go we do all sorts of things and play video games and watch movies and do all these things like it, it they become friends and and I can't really say that there's anything more valuable. Like, you know, it's great to work with your friends. And so I guess like, yeah, I guess if I were to be asked that question, should I go to a school for film scoring? I'd probably say yes, but make sure you go to one that has a very strong film program that you can collect, like, you know, network with. For sure. Um, but yeah, anyways, I'd love to talk a bit about um, your most recent film. Congrats on uh, being at Sundance. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, man. So can, can you tell us a bit about what the film's about? Yeah, yeah. So the film is called Wild Indian, and it's directed by Lyle Mitchell Corbine Jr. And um, Lyle had been working on this film for over six years, and so it's a really, really personal and passion like a really personal and passionate project for him the film is about two young boys two native american young boys living um and they kind of uh 
I guess I'm trying to think of the best way to describe. I, I don't know what's a spoiler or not. So let me. So excuse me. I guess spoilers ahead. It's not that big of a spoiler, but it's two young boys who basically get away with a grisly murder of another young boy. And these these boys are like you know, in elementary school. They're young, so they get away with this murder and they bury this kid. And basically the film jumps ahead to when they're adults. And the film is kind of about how this singular event rippled in time and changed their lives. Mm. So, and there's a lot of layers to the film. There's a lot of like deeper meanings to kind of what it's like to live as a native person and kind of how to and and I and you know there's so much to speak to about that but I think um I don't want to kind of go too deep because it's hard to describe some of the themes without um spoiling really big events in the film but um yeah it's kind of like a thriller drama well, maybe we can talk a bit about some of the musical challenges then or or things that you think made the score unique yeah, yeah. Some of the okay, it's it's interesting. So, Ly, actually, it's funny. Lyle and I met through Facebook, weirdly. So, Lyle ha- and I have like a few mutual Facebook friends, and when Lyle initially got accepted into the Sundance Lab and the Sundance uh, Composers Lab, or he got accepted into the Sundance Director and Writers Lab. Um, I saw people sharing and, po- and like tagging him. Like I saw him uh, like a, and a few times over my news feed, and I was just you know, who is this guy? And I ended up messaging him, and we connected, and I kind of got lucky with the timing. And he was he was you know open to looking at composers, and he ended up sending me the script. And asked me to write like suites based off the script, and that's kind of how I got the gig. So our initial score, he didn't use any temp score. It was all my suites from the beginning. So we're really, I was really lucky in that way. I never had to fight temp ever. And I think that was very challenging in its own way, was just trying to find the voice of the film completely on our own. Um, but so my initial suites were in kind of a style, very ambient music with some maybe some string solos, like a viola solo. And we were trying to find themes. And the challenge came when the film was actually shot and edited and none of the music worked. Like none of it fit. It was just not, it was not working. So we wrote, I wrote like a second score. And then we sat with that. So I started writing a new score and then we had been working on this film for like two years. Like, I mean, just on the music and we took a big break during the pandemic and then we kind of came back to it and realized that that score wasn't working either. And it wasn't that the score wasn't working. It was just highlighting a different part of the narrative. So what what we were realizing is that the narrative really needed something emotional and the, and the movie really became character driven. It, it was less about the event of this murder and how and it was more about how these characters lives were changed and i feel like my first score was highlighting the darkness and the atmospheric um dr- like thriller too much and what we and like we were missing a lot of the empathy and um compassion for the boys like we you know i think like it's really important for the audience to not hate these characters from the start not be like oh this this kid kills somebody i hate him and why should i try to sympathize with his struggles because he's a murderer that's not you know that's just not gonna help elevate the story i think that if that score was kind of two-dimensional and it was kind of painting the really obvious things on the picture and so we noticed this it was and so then we started working on like what would be maybe the third score of the movie which was the final one which is a more melodic and uh or somewhat orchestral melodic score that was more emotional and we allowed some of the thriller drama and darkness of the film to just be portrayed by the actors and not really 
be overly highlighted by the music. Hmm. Wow, that sounds intense, though, writing three separate scores. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I will say it wasn't three completely full-fleshed-out scores, but it was three... It was a lot. There's a lot of unused music for this film that maybe one day will find a purpose in another project. But yes, it, I, I'm glad that we had this much time, though, because I'm really happy with the final score. And I think it was the right path. It just maybe took us a little bit to get there. But I do I did really enjoy the process of trying to find that. And I think it was a big learning experience for both of us because he's it's a first time feature filmmaker and I'm still very young in my career. So we're still trying to find our process. And I think this was pretty instructive for both of us. Amazing. That's so funny to hear you say that, too, though, because I feel like you're you're so far for where you are, you know, just like. It's been a a lot done since graduating school. <laughs> I'm thanks, man. I still feel like I'm just like like I'm just learning. Like I, I still feel like a student to be honest. Like I'm still trying to figure it all out. But I um, I do feel like this film taught me a lot about um, being okay with starting over. Like not being like I think. Sometimes we get stuck. Like, to be honest, I was really pumped on some of the early music. Like, I thought musically alone, it was cool. And I was like, oh, this would be such a cool score if I could get this to work. And I think I tried too long to get these sounds to work. And that ended up kind of being um, like a block, like a mental block and becoming like a writer's block. So, um, and I'm sure every composer can kind of relate to that, but I think um, that this was a good pro. Like, this really helped me understand that sometimes you just need to start with a blank slate. Yeah. Yeah, I have that problem a lot. I mean, sometimes with scores, but more just having gone back into songwriting and producing a little bit here and there, just like sometimes you have a favorite line in a song or like your favorite sound, but then it's not serving the chorus for your song. And it's just like, it's, great it's just not doing the job of telling the story so you have to you have to kill it or give it another life and move it to another song and make it make that the center of the other one but realize that's not for this right how do you how do you find out though that that sounds not, like what what what's your process like to discover that this isn't right like i i feel like that's the hardest part well i think when songwriting is just like knowing Knowing what the chorus is, is kind of, and then making sure that the chorus is like trumps everything, right? Like that is like everything in the song should serve the chorus. Like if there's an intro synth sound, maybe it should have a little bit of the melody of the chorus just tucked in a little bit. I mean, even hmm. like closer by the Chainsmokers, you hear this dun 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 dun, like right in the right. intro filtered out. So it's just a little element that comes in and that's just preparing you for that melody 30 seconds later. Right. And I think that, you know, they could do anything. They could do a crazy synth lead or a guitar solo, but they chose to use that melody to intro that that part. And it's been done in thousands of pop songs like that. But then I think, yeah, it's just like once you find a chorus that you like and that you can sit with, then making sure everything fits that basically. And I think with film, it's just like, you know, sometimes the film is a horror film, but there's more to it. And just finding out what that, thing is that that you would find in the synopsis that would make it like the one sentence description of what the film is supposed to be telling then you want to make sure that everything ties into that right no it actually sounds really similar like like the chorus is really just making sure that you're like you're serving the narrative and you're not more like serving just the music you know like i i think sometimes you're right we get caught up in cool sounds cool ideas and It'll probably be a lifelong struggle of of trying to learn to release those and start fresh, but that's really interesting. I I think it it sounds just like how we like our process was. It took us a while to get there, I will say, and I imagine songwriting's a very fast paced process, and and especially it's a little bit shorter form, but yeah, very similar, very similar. Yeah, it's fine. I feel like a lot of art and storytelling mediums in general have so much connection with one another, even 
just like they do they do yeah the way that a painter approaches their craft i find very inspiring as a composer even though it's not necessarily going to be immediately transferable but just the way that one thinks about you know macro versus micro like are you going to focus on that one little pineapple in the background first or are you going to think about what the whole thing is before you do it or maybe you do need to focus on that pineapple you're drawing in the corner of the room to get the idea of where everything else is supposed to go Right, right. And sometimes going to what we were saying, that little pineapple may not even fit the painting when you figure out what the whole thing is, but you got so focused on wanting to include the pineapple that you're like, actually, this painting does not need this. And it's kind of tough sometimes to let go. And especially when you put a lot of work into these micro things, I think for me, I just have to hope that maybe some of the music I wrote that I enjoyed writing or maybe thought could still serve maybe just a different project that I don't I do think that I save a lot of my stuff and try to catalog unused things and um ironically I never use it <laughs> even like I, like I have it all stored and I've never found like going back for years I've never found places for that stuff mm-hmm. but still like to hope that one day Something I came up with a years ago will work for something in the future. Yeah. Who knows? We all like to hope that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, well, cool. I think if it's all right with you, I'd love to go into the last segment for the podcast, a segment called Tech Talk, where I list off a tech topic and you can say as much or as little as you want about it. Let's do it. Cool. I'm ready. The first one I have here for you is DAW. Okay. Um. Yeah, I use Logic. Um. To be honest, like... I really want to learn some. I really want to learn Ableton, man. Like, I really want to learn it. I I only want to learn Ableton for music away from film, though. Mm. Specifically because some of my biggest producer influences use Ableton. But that's a completely separate thing. I, I will say for Logic, I find it to be great for film scoring. Specific, specifically because it's super easy to export videos out of it and i find you know i do a lot of midi sequencing i also do my own sampling like i create a lot of my own samples and you know i i've always just loved logic and i think that i think ultimately it's like what daw can achieve your ideas the quickest like i I don't know i i think sometimes composers get into these daw debates like (laughs) i want to say i've been i've been silent in in like discussion where i've seen these heated debates between like daw users and i just want to say like ultimately it does not matter what daw use as long as you can achieve your workflow quickly and every idea you have is accessible you know yeah i don't really Actually, I think I used to judge people who use Digital Performer, maybe, for, for writing. Okay, yeah. But, I mean, look, some of some of them may be outdated. No, but, but it's still great. And, you know, I'm not going to say that, you know, Teddy Shapiro's scores in Digital Performer aren't, you know, on par yeah, with everything right, else, you know? It's just like... I mean, he writes better music than most people in any... And, like, yeah, oh, yeah, you're right. Like, I, I definitely was, like, one time at a composer lunch meeting, and I want to say... There was this extremely heated debate about Dawes. And I just think that, I think that there's just too, I think like if you are assisting a composer, then you definitely just need to conform to their Daw. And that's always a great way to switch. And if if you're like kind of, if you are collaborating with other composers, like I could see cross Daw collaborations being somewhat tedious or difficult, like, you know, I, I totally understand why some DAWs could be better for certain projects. To be honest, I've always wanted to learn Ableton because of some of the in-DAW plugins and some of the, like, effect chains. And, and I don't know, like, there's just, there's also a really unique workflow. Look, like, I, I like the thing with Ableton that's kind of different than most of the other DAWs is just its workflow and also its live capabilities. And going back to something you and I had discussed very early in the podcast is live performance. I would love to just be very 
proficient in Ableton specifically for live just because it'd be such a really um, useful tool to start performing music live. And also, I just think it could maybe, maybe the DAW could inspire different music. Like, who knows? Maybe DAWs do influence uh, your your writing. I don't know. You know it's funny, actually, because I, I just talked to a friend about how I felt really stupid because I'd written this whole short film score uh, for my friends at Reanimate, all in Ableton, just because it was five minutes. And it came out wow. so good, in my opinion at least, that I was like, man, I hate that I think I wrote my best music in Ableton because it's not good for film score. <laughs> wow. I do. I, I've heard this before, though. I think you're on. I don't think there's like, I think you're on to something. Like, I do think DAWs can influence our writing. I think there's like, there's work, there's just different workflows. Like the, you know what I mean? Like the layouts, maybe the way you layer, maybe some of the ideas like you can come up with. I mean, someday you and I should get together and you can give me some Ableton lessons. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so happy to help out with that. And uh, yeah, it's a fun one. Uh, next one we have here, analog polysynth. Okay. I have, that's a great one. And I have the sequential profit six and that's the only analog polysynth i have and man it is amazing and i was really lucky to get it um a used module i got just the module um which i now think might be ch more challenging for live stuff but um, it's just so, so inspiring. I, I've also had this exact debate with some composers who are like soft synth or die. And I totally get it for TV score for like fast paced scoring. Totally. I mean, I understand like Paul, like using my analog polysynth is time consuming. It's difficult to replicate some of my presets, especially like late nights when I, have twisted a million knobs and I find something really cool. That's like the only time I can ever get it. And actually for my two albums that I've written away from film, they're very, they're primarily made on my sequential profit six, like um, analog synth. And I just, I feel like the sounds are very unique. I like, I really like twisting the knobs. I really like kind of getting off my computer like for a minute and just, spending time with like a machine um i think i think uh it also kind of instead that kind of goes with what we were just saying about the daw i write different with that synth like i just make different music when i'm using it opposed to using like midi soft synths like i don't know exactly why it just inspires something different so I totally recommend experimenting and diving into that world. And I think with the with so many modules coming out, you know, you can really get a great poly analog synth for so much cheaper, you know, than like getting the full rig. And yeah, man, I I I expect that I will be investing in so much more analog gear, you know, obviously when It'd be great to like get more analog gear for gigs, like for specific gigs. Like if I got like some sort of cool sci-fi movie, <laughs> obviously like, yeah, I'm going to get, I can't wait to get more. I, I, I even have a friend who was selling his Juno, one of his Juno, Paul, like I think I can't remember like what model it was, but it ended up breaking in the mail. It's kind of sad. So when I got it, I bought it from him, and then when I got here, it broke, and that was like three months ago. So I was kind of looking forward to spending a lot of time with that, especially in quarantine. But what about you? You got? Do you have any? I do. They're all, yeah. Actually, I think every single synth I have is right now being borrowed by uh, my friend Daniel Rojas. <laughs> so, wow, is he working on something? Sort of. Yeah. I also just happened to like not really need them at the time, and I, I definitely miss them, but. Then it's funny. The thing I missed most was my make noise synth. And then I got an email oh, from cool. my friend Dan at newfangled audio. And he's told me he's working on this West coast inspired synth, um, for newfangled. So it's this thing called, uh, generate. And then there was a free version called pendulate. And I did a bunch of the, the presets for both of them. 
Whoa. The free one, Pendulate, is so good. And as soon as I got it, I was like, yeah, I don't really miss my make noise anymore. Oh my god, dude. Do you do you do stuff with do you do any modular stuff? Yeah, so I have the make noise. I've got um a Moog Mother 32, some more make noise uh what is it? It's like the S not the STO, the DPO. Eventide sent me a really cool delay that I haven't yet put into the rack, but that one's cool. Fun. The funny thing with my my uh your rack rig is I don't have enough space and I don't even have a VCA, I think right now. Right. So, How, where did you learn to use modular stuff? Because I understand it's like this huge endeavor. I actually attended. There was an LA course called like Intro to Modular Synthesis. Nice. And not, and I don't really want to say any names, but it was a completely horrible course that was so not for beginners. It like started off with. And everybody who attended had already spent years. I just felt so overwhelmed and I just didn't, I just couldn't even grasp it. But I, I just think, you know, that obviously wasn't the right thing, but I, I really want to get into it. And I just don't really know where to even start. You know, it's funny because at NYU, at the Clive Davis program, um, they had this modem synth there, the MOTM ones, and that was awesome. And the thing I did that was so boring to most of the modular synth people is I just went in and basically made it a mini Moog, you know, I made it into a three oscillator synth with that filter. And mm -hmm. then from there, it's like, oh, okay, so what if I want to, instead of having a traditional Moog, patch one of the oscillators into the other, you know, uh, into the tune of the other. So then uh, now one's an LFO and then, and then just like starting with like those little small steps. So I actually think that a great way to get in would either be to get something like the Moog Mother 32 where it's like all in one and then you could eventually get rid of it because it just has you know all the basic stuff you need but <laughs> there's actually also a website called centorial.com where I asked one of my teachers Nick Sansano for a recommendation and he sent me this book that I thought was so dry and boring and then because I was looking it up I got hit with like one of those targeted ads for Centorial and that it's an app where it's all video lessons, but then it actually comes with a free plug-in synthesizer and it trains your ear to listen for specific things. And it's kind of like that equivalent. I think you had to take like Paul Jaluso's class, right? If you were at Seinhardt, like the ear training one. Um, I, I ended up testing out of it, Oh, nice. but, but I, cause I did a lot of ear training in um, my undergrad, but I, I, are you talking about the, mixer ear training class uh yeah the, exactly oh i yeah i never took that one actually oh, i know what you're okay. talking about though. oh sorry no, i thought you meant like ear training like oral skills like listening to scales oh, yeah there's one where it's just like you listening mean like for the, frequencies or, or whatever no i wish i i should i kind of missed out on that class i should have taken that yeah well it's kind of like something like that but for synthesizing so you'll you'll get like basically the same midi played through the synth and then it will and then you have like A, which is yours, and then B, which is what you're trying to match, and you just have to get as close as you can. And it just starts off with like the filter frequency cutoff or Super whatever, cool. and then it gets more and more advanced. Where you're just recreating the same synth patch, and then gets your ear really, really working quick. I would be very game for that. That's actually some I love doing that stuff. I know some people don't, but I abuse. I'll I'll look into that, man. We'll we'll continue this after after this podcast and we'll, cause I really would love all those resources for sure. And, uh, yeah, the last one I have here might be easy. I'm not sure, but networking apps, networking apps. Um, okay. Well, there's a, there's a really great networking app called jam card. You know, I think a lot of us know that that's like networking more for musicians. And I will say I have met so many incredible musicians in LA that I actually work, especially remotely with. So I'm assuming a, a good portion of your listeners know, or even are already very like active on Jamcard, but just in case it's like a networking app that was kind of initially designed for touring musicians. Like I'm pretty sure really big pop stars have actually posted for, you know, session players through Jamcard. But for me, I actually just search like an instrument 
and it gives me a ton of instrumentalists and then I'm able to hire them for scores. I mean, I, I, I literally work with three string musicians who are big session players in L.A. And if, I mean, I had actually seen their names like on other scores, but I, you know, I felt most comfortable reaching out to them through Jam Card. And we work together on so many projects now, like, and they all like a lot, like the great thing on Jam Card is they, um, they kind of tell you if they have a remote recording set up, and they give you even they even like list like their equipment so I could see mics and preamps and what DAW they use or like how much experience they have, and it's just been fantastic. Like to like even the three musicians I have worked with from Jam Card specifically had like multiple mics so I could even like choose like a ribbon mic or whatever and then so that's a great experience I've had with the networking app I would say that there are other ones like what like mixer and I've even been invited to other ones that are like more art based and there are definitely great people in there I just think that sometimes with those networking apps you can get really really lucky and make some incredible connections and i definitely think it's worth it like why not to join them that being said there's also so many the saturation of some of them when they start accepting everybody when they're like a little bit less exclusive i think it's it's just hard to weed out who's legitimate or not like who who's like just all talk or like who like especially for composers like i think that sometimes like i have a lot of composer friends who are just getting started and it's very easy to get taken advantage of like i i i'm going to try not to say any any like publication names or any company names but it's easy to be like oh hey this huge newspaper or this huge reporting magazine or whatever this huge blog or whatever is looking for music and they it's like but they don't have any money and it's just like they they sometimes use these networking apps to to just find desperate people to kind of under uh value like our craft and so i guess you just who who's to say like that probably existed at every time period in our industry but i will say it's very prevalent um in some of the i can i think of one app that i had a friend who told me some pretty like kind of unethical stuff so you know take it with a grain of salt i i think you should get on them like why not like i think when i i think i joined i've joined a few like i, I don't know if i use them a ton right now but I definitely think they're useful. And I think that even like networking through Instagram and Facebook, like I, I just told you, I met Lyle, the Sundance director through Facebook. That being said, it wasn't like a cold email. Like we had mutual friends and he had seen Cam, the film I worked on, but I still, I really do think that like, why not take advantage of the development of social networking and all that? That all makes sense. And yeah. It seems like you do such a great job with following up with people and that kind of thing. So it's kind of curious. I will say, like, when you follow up with people, it's kind of like silly, but you should definitely set reminders. Like, how it is so hard to keep in. Like, I, I, you and I have spoken about my agent, Alexander, and he even like recommended like creating a spreadsheet for like all your connections, all their emails, numbers, who, where, what project you worked on them, what their specific job title is. Like you should, I don't know if I sat like, excuse me. I don't know if I like have done that as efficiently as I should, but I will say that when I do work on projects, I set up reminders for invoices, reminders for like, Hey, this person said this project would be done in, around this time. So I kind of set a lot of like iPhone calendar reminders and, that's and it, it makes you just seem very professional and all and there's way there's just ways to follow up where you seem cordial and um not really needy or desperate i just think there's always that fine line of like 
not harassing people. And I think a good way to do that is to set a reminder so you're not like forgetting when the last time you emailed them is or whatever. For sure. Well, Gavin, it was such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks, man. I hope I didn't ramble too much and there were some good tidbits. I ran, dude, I ramble so much. Like, <laughs> my dad was a rambler, just friends in the family. Or just, <laughs> um, you know, like, if for anybody listening to this, if there's anything you want me to elaborate on or if there's any young composers who want more information, feel free to to like reach out or like reach like message me on social media or email me. I, you know, I, I get busy, but I really do. I was, I was really fortunate to be, to have a lot of bigger composers actually respond to me when I was just getting started and their advice was really, really helpful. And I was so surprised by some of them who took the time to respond. So I just remember that and I want to do the same. So, you know, don't, don't, feel shy and i will say don't don't feel uh shy in general you know why not reach out to that person or try emailing this or that you know thanks for listening to this episode of composer talk if you like what we're doing feel free to follow us on instagram or facebook The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.